something like 40 million Americans say that they're willing to use violence to protect the country. We have something over 400 million guns in this country, and 80% of those are on one side of the equation. That's our status. So if you're mindful of that, you have to be respectful of the need to both fight this fight and do everything we can to keep the discourse reasonable enough that it doesn't tip into more violence. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Peter T. Coleman, professor of psychology and education at Columbia University and a researcher and practitioner in conflict resolution. Peter has a book called The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization, which suggests how the study of conflict resolution and complexity science might provide guidance for dealing with our seemingly intractable political differences. We had a good conversation about Peter's career and what might work to get us back on track. I found Peter very insightful. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Professor Peter T. Coleman at Columbia. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Peter, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Peter Coleman. I am a professor of psychology and education at Columbia University, where I direct some different research centers, mostly focusing on constructive conflict resolution processes or sustainably peaceful societies. And I've been on faculty there for 25 years. But I'm also a practitioner. I'm a mediator and work in consulting in different problematic areas in the world. But my primary mandate is to try to do science that's relevant for practitioners or for human beings that are in conflict and to be able to translate the research in ways that are useful. It seems like the world would provide full employment for someone with skills like that. Yes, it is a boom time for this field. Yeah, true. (laughs) Where did you grow up? Grew up in Chicago. I was born in Chicago in 59. So I grew up there for the first, you know, 10 years of my life, which was a formative experience for me because Chicago was in the late 60s. uh, There was a lot of civil unrest. There were protest marches. There was a mayor daily at the time who was a draconian mayor and would, you know, use violence to put down protesters. And then Martin Luther King came to Chicago and organized. So there was a lot of really interesting kind of macro stuff happening at that time related to the Vietnam War and to other, you know, uh, cultural changes that were happening in the country. But that's where I was born, in Chicago. My parents divorced when I was 10. I moved to Iowa. As I like to put it, I did time in Iowa. And then I moved to New York in uh, the early 1980s. A lot of times someone who works in conflict resolution has some inner need to do that. Where do you think that comes from with you? Well, I think some of it is the the context that I was born in, both the family tensions and challenges that divorced parents and, and multiple siblings uh, put on us. We were also of low means, so I had to start working at a very early age. There was a struggle orientation in our family. But, you know, again, it was hard to be in Chicago when I was there. I had two siblings that were about 10 years older than I. 
So they were much more kind of plugged into the civil unrest and to the youth movements that were taking place. And so I was aware of those kinds of, I guess, what we call macro worry, those kinds of more uh, unsettling issues that were happening in the streets of Chicago. I remember driving downtown with my father and seeing protesters and seeing, you know, the hippie movement and seeing, you know, some of the unrest. So that definitely played a role, both the personal tensions and disturbances that happened in our family, as well as what was happening in the broader society. I guess part of being in Iowa was going to college. Uh, how, how was that? Yeah. So I, when I first moved there, I lived in a place called Dubuque, Iowa, which felt like the end of the world for me from Chicago, because Chicago is you know, a big, vibrant city. Dubuque is a small town, relatively but then I went to the University of Iowa for college, which was great. You know, it was in some ways this bastion within the state of Iowa that had a lot of, you know, culture and ideas and people. And so that was a great experience. The University of Iowa was fantastic. I got into acting there and then came to New York to be an actor, which I did for about 10 years before I got into this work. I noticed that long gap between your kind of master's PhD work and college. And I, I was curious about that. What led you to go back and get a PhD as you did? I moved to New York to be an actor. I went to a place called the American Academy. Uh, my last year at Iowa, I was in an MFA program in acting, got interested in that, came to New York, studied here for a year, got hired by ABC to do soap operas mostly and did you know that kind of work for a while. But then at some point, um, I moved to Florida, lived with a friend who was working on his PhD in psychology. I was just living there over a summer and teaching, acting in a school there, and got involved working in a psychiatric hospital with adolescents, which, because of the kinds of things I was paid for as an actor, which you know was a privilege, but what weren't particularly intellectually stimulating, working with young people in crisis was. And it felt very meaningful and kind of soulful. And so when I came back to New York, even though I was still acting and writing as an actor and playwright, I was really continued to work in psychiatric hospitals in New York City with, with adolescents. And that's when I first got exposed to levels of violence. You know, it was a, a time when a lot of these young people were coming into psychiatric hospitals because they had committed crimes, been arrested, were trying to reduce their sentences, they were coming into drug rehabs or psychiatric hospitals to basically reduce their, their punishment, their sentences. So it was a violent population. So part of what I was doing, I'm not trained to do, but just instinctually was helping manage the peace of the community and building relationships with young people right away when they would come in so that when things escalated, I found myself in a place where I could talk to them and try to talk them down. So that was my early work, which again, came out of just the interest of the work itself. But then as the population I worked with became more and more violent, finding a need to address that and to try to understand it, because I had no conceptual framework. I just was kind of going in my gut and my instinct about how to build relationships with young people. And then when they were acting out or aggressive or, or threatening worse violence, I felt like I could sit down with them and say, can you talk to me first you know, before you make this worse? Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's how I got interested in what is this kind of violence prevention, conflict resolution thing. I also will say that at the time I was thinking about becoming a clinical psychologist and working with individuals, but a lot of these kids you know, kids were, tw were 12 to 28 year olds. And a lot of them were kind of repeatedly coming in. So they'd come into the hospital for a while, do a month or so, go back to their homes, get in trouble again, come back in. And so it seemed to me like working with them as individuals was not particularly effective when it came to chronic problems around chronic violence or crime or drug addiction or other things. And that I became more, much more interested in thinking about the kind of systemic forces that draw them into these things and working less with the individual and more with the kind of system of factors that, that affect these chronic patterns. 
Well, I went back to school after four years out into a PhD program. I found that challenging. What was it like for you uh, uh, reintegrating into that atmosphere and and getting into the literature of psychology, which you were studying, I guess? And what was the path there? So, you know, I, I was working in this psychiatric hospital, and then at some point I went into administration and worked to, in running, helping run the hospital for a few years that allowed me to get some money so that I could go back to school. But I was always interested in the conflict work. I found a man named Mort Deutsch, who was at Columbia, who was an eminent theorist in social psychology and in conflict and peace. And he had just retired at Columbia. So I got there just, just as he'd retired, which for me was good news because it meant he had more time to, to spend with students. So he was my mentor. Um, and the program I was in was a social organizational psych program. It had a kind of systems orientation to thinking about systemic forces and systemic change. And that was great. But Mort was my mentor. And he was a brilliant, you know, psychologist, one of the most influential psychologists of all times. His work had been really seminal in, you know, Mort believed in the power of big ideas and using science to systematically refine our understanding of when those ideas are useful and when they're not. And so he had spent his career doing that. He had in many ways transformed the world. His work was influential in international affairs, in organizational life, in schools. So I saw the impact of his work, but also the rigor with which he approached his, his science. And so I, I became very interested in that. And so when I graduated with my PhD there, a position opened up to direct the center that was named after him and to do research in this area. So I jumped on it. What did you write your dissertation on? My dissertation was on power and the resistance of the powerful in the face of the need for social change. So I was interested in, and this actually came out of his, Mort Deutsch's seminal book is called The Resolution of Conflict. At the end of it, he sort of says, you know, I've, I've been writing, uh, providing advice to those in low power about what to do, but one of the big obstacles is those in high power that aren't studied, that are really not interested in change, that are invested in the status quo. And so how do we address that? And that was a question he raised at the end of that book. And so when I wanted to work in my dissertation, he said, bring me three ideas. And that was one of them. And he said, that's it. That's like a fundamental question you got to address. You know, So I did a series of studies looking at how people think about power and the difference between what are sort of more fixed notions of power as a fixed pie or expandable notions of power as something that can be grown and shared among people and how that, that simple distinction led to people taking up authority roles in very, very different ways, responding to conflict with their staff in very different ways. So it was something called implicit theories of power and the effects of that on how people take up authority and how people respond to conflict. So the, I did a studies on, on that, and that was my dissertation. Did you feel like you're like on the right path now? Did it feel like you had kind of found your life's work, or was that... Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, I was very interested in, you know, in conflict and violence prevention and those kinds of things. And Mort was, you know, a big thinker. It was interesting. I had two two people on my committee at that time. When I told Mort what I wanted to study, he said, fantastic. You should go off and read broadly, you know, read just big thinkers on this topic. And so I did that for a bit and came up with some ideas. And my other committee member was a guy named Harvey Hornstein, who was much more of a, of a technical mechanic on science. And so I remember giving him my draft and it came back within 20 minutes with all this red ink on it saying, what are you going to do here? How are you going to operationalize this? How are you going to get the evidence for this? You know? <laughs> so Mort said, you know, broaden out. Harvey said, where are you going? Yeah, how are you going to get there? So sounds like a good team, actually. It was a fantastic team, and it was a great tension between trying to capture big ideas but make them researchable, you know, and being able to have operationalizations and all the stuff you need in social science. So, um, so yeah, I, I I found the program very informative. My relationship with Harvey and Mort were were uh, profound, and um, but the center which is now called the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution, 
that Deutsch had founded in 1986 and really founded it as a way to try to keep science as relevant to practice and practice as relevant to science because they tend to fall, fall apart. Um, that was my home and it felt like the right place to be. And so to be able to c- come in as co-director for a year and then take over as director did feel like I was in in a place that was fantastic because I, you know, my job is basically learning all the time, writing or talking about what I've learned when doing research on those things, teaching about it, and then working with graduate students who are smarter than me and better equipped than me to advance the field. So, you know, it's, it's a good job. So what are the highlights of what you did from that point, taking over the center to launching the, the book that we're going to talk about? What are some of the career highlights along that way? When you're in a research university like Columbia, there is tons of pressure to publish, publish, publish in high-level journals to make an impact in certain areas. The good news was that I was directing the center, and the center at the time had a relationship with the United Nations, and we were doing a lot of training around the world with the United Nations. The bad news was that I didn't have time to do any of it because my job was to focus on the science and to advance the science so, you know, what that forced me to do is to really, you know, live in a life of the mind, even though I've been trained as a mediator, worked as a consultant, did practical things on occasions when they would come up, but mostly I couldn't um, do these, what were interesting projects around the world because I needed to really focus on advancing the science. So it really forced me to focus on some things that I thought were again, kind of big questions. And and because Deutsch's work was so fundamental in the field of conflict resolution, what I started to look at was, well, what do we not know? What are the things, so Mort tells us about cooperative and competitive dynamics and conflict, but what we don't know is like when you're, when the, when you're negotiating across major power differences, like how does that change everything? Or when you're working across major cultural differences, how does that derail Mort's basic premises? Or, you know, the, the field that I eventually got into uh, was intractability. When do these ideas around negotiation and mediation and constructive conflict resolution, wh- when do they hit a wall and fail? And so there is a category of problems, wicked problems or intractable conflicts or protracted social conflicts, like we see in Israel or like we see in poli- the political divides today that require a different way of thinking and working because they're not responsive to more mainstream attempts to work things out. It seems like at some point along the way, you you bumped up against theories from other fields having to do with complexity. Tell me a little about that and what you're drawing from there. Yeah. So again, I was, you know, Mort was a, a social psychologist, an experimental social psychologist. And so I was trained to do lab research. You know, my, my dissertation study, even though it was on power and resistance to change, was a series of lab studies on a fairly narrow topic of implicit theories of power and how it affects people's behavior. When I started to work on more what we would call intractable, long-term entrenched conflicts, I did research on something called ripeness theory, which is the conditions under which people move from trying to kill each other to being willing to negotiate on identity formation in the context of that. I looked at toxic uh, emotions like humiliation. So I did a, a bunch of these smaller studies on pieces of the problem of intractability. But I was very disillusioned by our ability to understand Because all of these pieces could explain some piece of the variance of why people get stuck and why people hate each other and why people try to kill each other and get trapped in that. But it was insufficient to the nature of the problem, which was very, very complex. So I was interested in trying to think more systemically about how do these things work as a system. But I have to say I was equally disillusioned by how people thought about systems work in my field. Because thinking about complex systems was a metaphor that was becoming more and more common, but that's all it was. It was a way to talk about things that are complicated and interrelated and multi-level and last over time. 
but these metaphors did not lend themselves to empirical testing and empirical research. And so it really was a dead end. You know, all it left people with was, yeah, Israel-Palestine is complicated, right? And good luck, because you can intervene and have no idea the impact of what you do. That's a pretty helpless place to leave people. And then in 2002, I read a journal that had been published by two editors, Robin Balaker and Andrzej Novak, who were social psychologists who were steeped in complexity science. Andrzej in particular was worked a lot with in physics and, and biology and mathematical modeling, but they were trying to inform psychology about the value of complexity science for understanding how the pieces of research that we usually study work as systems. And they were really trying to kind of respectfully nudge the field of psychology forward. And I read a edited journal that they read where they took some of the top social psychologists and encouraged them to think differently about the phenomenon they were interested in, like motivation or personality as a complex system. And what I was impressed by is they went way beyond metaphor. They would say, okay, so yes, personality is a complex system, but how would you measure that? How would you track that over time? Could you mathematically model that? So they were using empirical science and mathematical tools and simulations to test and refine this sort of theoretical ideas that came out of the metaphors of complexity. So I was really impressed with how they did it, contacted them right away. I said, do you want to help make world peace? They said, we're in. <laughs> so they basically, you know, said they had worked in a lot of different areas, but nothing with the kind of policy relevance of peace. So we joined forces and for several years invited other people in and started to work in a multidisciplinary team to understand things like intractability as systems that get stuck that are driven by a lot of different factors, but mostly driven by the dynamics of the system. So it's not just the economics or the politics or the history or the trauma, but it's how all of those things coalesce to create patterns that profoundly resist change. You make this distinction between clock problems and cloud problems. That's kind of what you're talking about, this difference, right? Can you yeah. explain that? Yeah, so that comes from Karl Popper, who was a philosopher of science, and he wrote about this in the 60s and 70s. And he just argued that, you know, because of the profound impact certain advances in science, like Newtonian mechanics and physics, and the ability to build simple algorithms that had such explanatory power, there was a tendency in science to look at the pieces, right? That we really would look at something like cancer and try to understand the phenomenon of cancer, which could have nutritional elements and social and psychological elements and biophysical elements and, you know, uh, the environment that you grow up in and your exposure to toxins, all of those things could matter. But we approach cancer by looking at, you know, cellular behavior and how it, right? And we look at pieces and that has gotten us a long way in many fields, particularly engineering, computer science, looking at pieces of problems and studying that that way. And those are what he referred to as clock problems, and that some problems lend themselves to thinking about how do you identify the broken piece in this clock, repair it, and put it back together so that it's functional. But he argued that in society, most of the problems we face are what he called clock problems. Cloud. Yeah, like a cloudy, like a gases um, or... Uh, um, uh, like flies that cluster or something like that, that are multiple entities interacting in strange ways that are unpredictable. And he said, the truth is, if you think about most of society's problems, like chronic violence, chronic poverty, um, even well-being, these are cloudy problems and they don't operate and respond to clock fixes, to going in and sort of finding the thing and repairing it. So he offered that distinction he offered a continuum to say that there are clock-like problems and cloud-like problems that most people believed at the time that as science advanced and as algorithms advanced and as our ability to measure things at, a, at precise levels advanced, 
most people believe that all problems were ultimately clock problems, that we could figure out how to intervene in ways that would make a difference. You know, DNA, we approach as a clock problem. He argued that because there's always error in our measurement, that even some clock problems are cloudy. And so we could do something that ideally could help, but backfires because we were not measuring it accurately enough. So he sort of offered caution and said, we shouldn't approach complex dynamic problems that are changing and that are unresponsive to more linear approaches. We should be mindful of the fact that sometimes that's not the way to work with them. And we have to learn a way to think and work with them that's different. That was his basic argument that, you know, again, comes out of experiences in physics where Newtonian mechanics work at a certain level, but when you go to the subatomic level, the rules change and the dynamics change. And so he was sort of saying that happens in all areas of science, including social science and conflict. So we need to understand that there are different channels that we can operate on and think about problem solving that should affect how we approach problems. In your your recent book, the way out, there are a lot of uh, diagrams that are like three-dimensional mats with kind of like a complex landscape with holes and peaks. What's the source of that kind of metaphor? It has to do with attractors. How's that fitting in? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think I was first introduced to that um, in this multidisciplinary team that I worked with with Andrew Novak and Robin Bellaker, and there was a man named Larry Leibovich, who's a physicist that worked with us. And there was a, a young woman from Poland named Lan Wierzynska, who was a Vietnamese, Polish, French woman. And she was a student working with us. And, and we were trying to think about, well, what are the, as Larry Leibovich likes to say, complexity science, there are many flowers in the garden of complexity science. There are many tools that it lends us network studies or differential equations, you know, and attractors are a phenomenon in complexity science. And basically all attractors are is if you measure something over time, if you measure your interaction with your siblings over time and you you collect enough data, you start to see that, yeah, every time I get with my siblings, either we're laughing really hard or we're fighting very intensely or we ignore each other. Those are the three things we do, right? And that's a pattern that's stable and has been stable probably for decades and will probably continue to be stable. Those are attractors. What creates attractors? A lot of things, right? It depends on you and your personalities and your relationships and the conditions and whether your parents are alive or not. All of those things create these patterns. But attractors seem to be a ripe metaphor to understand intractability understand Israel-Palestine and how, despite changes in escalation and de-escalation and violence and policy changes, leadership changes, the pattern of relations between Israelis and Palestinians and within them are pretty stable over time, despite people's good faith attempts to change that, right? So how do you understand that an attractor dynamics allowed us a metaphor, but then ultimately methods and measures and mathematical models that would allow us to start to study that and un- understand it in a different way. I think it was first Lon that said, you know, of all these ways we could approach complexity science and understanding attractability, attractor dynamics is, is a very promising way. And so we started to read and think and bring in tools that would allow us to understand the formation of these landscapes. And I guess, you know, so again, if you think about your siblings, it might be that you get together two or three times a year. Inevitably, there is a conflict, right? You could deal with that conflict at that time, but it wouldn't necessarily change the landscape of of your relationships, the patterns that you're tended to be attracted into, right? And changing those landscapes are very different from changing or addressing any specific conflict. In conflict resolution, we usually face, you know, the presenting problem. People say, this is the problem. This is where I feel pain. This is what I want to change. And that's what we focus on. And most of the time that's useful. But 
when you have chronic problems coming up again and again and again, it's telling you that it's perhaps not the presenting problem that needs to be addressed, but the nature of the kind of contours of their relationship that they keep getting drawn into for maybe purposes that are beyond them. You know, attractor dynamics are not just our choices, but they're what I call biopsychosocial structural dynamics. They're within us, they're in our psychology, they're in our relationships, they're in our environment, they're in incentive systems, or all of those things are operating in concert today in America to pit us against each other and pull us apart. The book, um, The Way Out, is a theoretical book and it's an applied book. Like the problems, it's a complicated book. As I was reading it, I was like trying to apply some of the lessons to things that I face. I, mean, I think that's how anybody who would would enter that book and come through it would be thinking. In this podcast, I've interviewed over 750 people that are working on the conflict in the United States, political conflict, from different perspectives. Many of them are leaders in the conflict. They are trying to win. Some of them are trying to make it so we're not fighting so hard with each other. Like you talked about with sort of Newtonian things, it's some people are dealing with their very specific piece of it. They are worried about how Asian Americans in Pennsylvania are voting and they're on that. They have an expertise in a particular area of politics. It feels like if there's a deficit, it's in that holistic thinking about the polarized conflict writ large. It's super hard. We don't know how to solve it. This is exactly what the subject of the book is, right? How do we tackle something like that? You have a chart that appears several times about the party polarization 1879 to 2015 and the shape of that. It was quite polarized in the 19th century after the Civil War. There's a reduction. This is in Congress and then a huge spike, not necessarily in the electorate, but in, in Congress. How do we tackle this highly intractable party polarization problem? If you were called in as a consultant to a state legislature or to Congress, where some people are invested in the conflict and trying to worsen it, how, how do you get in there? Yeah. I dedicate this book to the exhausted middle majority. This is a group that the more in common folks out of the UK have characterized in America, which is, you know, people in the middle, more in the middle, that are fed up and exhausted and don't want the status quo anymore. They don't want us to screaming at each other in the news. They don't see there's value in it. They don't want Congress to be, you know, stalemated and shut down. They want functional leadership at a time when we need leadership. And so that's who I wrote the book for, for two reasons. One is because what we've learned from the study of long-term divided societies that get polarized and, and that come out of that polarization is that the conditions that help that are when you have enough people that are fed up and want an alternative point of view, but they also need to be able to see what to do. What's the alternative? And my feeling was that there had been a lot of good work happening on political polarization in terms of science and in terms of books like um, Ezra Klein's book on why we're polarized which do articulate why this is such a difficult problem, but didn't really offer a ton of insight into what to do about it, right? And so there's a lot of diagnoses of the problems. And again, some of those are very piecemeal and some of them are more comprehensive, but few of them offer any insight about what to do. And what we know from something called ripeness theory, which I mentioned I'd studied earlier in my career, is that there are kind of two basic conditions. One is that there has to be sufficient mutual pain on both sides of the equation of a dispute and a sense of what to do about it, right? That there is an alternative. That's why I wrote this book is to try to explicate and to try to take my understanding of science, both complexity science, but also peace and conflict studies and psychology and say, there are basically five things you could do right? And these are things you can do in your life or in your family or in your building or your neighborhood or scale it up to national and international relations. These are scientific principles that have shown 
to be useful and constructive in difficult times like this to pivot and to choose another direction. So, you know, I am optimistic that despite that long-term pattern from that's from voting in the U.S. Congress, the truth is the same patterns have, have been evident on Main Street since the 1970s. So our attitudes, red and blue attitudes towards the other and towards our own group continue to become more escalated and ugly since the same time as Congress has been divided. So they mirror each other. And it is a long-term problem. This is a 50, 60-year trajectory that we're stuck in. And every election cycle, because of the structures of our elections, feeds it. And so we're going to see it intensify in 2022 and the midterms. We'll see it again in 2024. And it's hard to say whether or not it's going to get worse before it will get better. I suspect it will. I suspect we'll see more January 6th-like insurrections Maybe not in D.C., maybe in state capitals, but I think we'll see more political violence. And the good news about that is that that makes more people miserable and maybe more ready to reconsider, you know, their choices and their decisions. You know, what I was trying to do in this book is appeal to those in the middle that matter to re-engage them in political processes if they feel disillusioned and disengaged and offer them evidence-based scientific actions that they could take in their lives and their communities to help us all navigate out of this. I will say just one other thing. The, the little things that everybody does matters. There, you know, the 7,000 bridge building groups that are existing in the country today that are in local communities that are bringing red and blue Americans together or people together against racial, across racial divisions or religious divisions, those things matter, right? They do kind of create a local cultural ethos that is more tolerant and respectful and functional. So all of those things matter. And the fact that that's happening in the political system, in Congress, that that's happening in business, that that's happening with non-for-profits and service organizations across America, that there's a lot of attention to this crisis of polarization we have as a what I call first order problem. It's affecting our understanding of all of our problems and our willingness to address them. The fact that there are so many individuals and groups and organizations and institutions mobilizing to address this is good news because, again, it's a complex problem. There are no simple solutions, but there are many activities or initiatives that will help and that will make things less worse, less hateful, less potentially violent, and, and, and ultimately maybe move us in a better direction. But it does require an awareness of the fact that this, there's no simple solutions to this. It's not just about you and me talk, sitting down and talking about something we differ on. That can be very helpful under certain conditions, but understanding what those conditions are and when those kinds of conversations are not helpful is where the science comes in. I feel like I carry in my head at the same time two things. One is the other side, the Trumpists, let's say, the... Uh, true believers. It's the true believers on the right that I have absorbed enough of the reality and possibly some of the bias of my side to really be fired up against. And so there's part of me that's like, the only thing that we can do is defeat them. They can't be changed. And I hear this a lot, right? At the same time, a more complex view of it where I know people who have that lens, that very alternate lens, and I know they're not bad people. I know they are consuming different information. I know that their values are different and legitimate in a lot of ways. And I'm okay with conflict in elections if it's not too toxic, if it's just like, we'll fight this out and we'll abide by the results. How do you know when it's a moment where you have to defeat an evil, like the Russians in Ukraine, maybe they just have to be defeated versus we can work out some kind of compromise. We can agree to differ, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I think I think um, the Russians in Ukraine is a good metaphor to think about because um, yes, it's true that the West is clearly signaling and mobilizing to provide more arms to the Ukraine to signal this is that we're in this for the long run. 
that we will support the Ukrainians in their fight. And the UN uh, Secretary General met with Putin this week. And the Pope is working tirelessly in back-channel negotiations. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals and groups that are back-channel negotiating simultaneously. And negotiating potentially with the devil and Putin, who you know seems to be a completely immoral, calculated Machiavellian character, but realize that the continuation of violence and war and the fight is lose-lose for everybody. We're devastating people's lives, their communities, their infrastructure, affecting oil prices, affecting trade. You know, there are all kinds of negative consequences in that. Somehow you need to be able to hold on to both, right? So yes, I agree that there are bad actors that need to be confronted, need to be litigated, need to be challenged. In some cases need to be arrested because they're threatening violence or committing violence. That all has to continue. And we have to find inroads to try to change these dynamics because civil war would be a bad thing. If you've ever been in a civil war zone, they're terrifying. And it's not impossible that that couldn't happen here, right? We've seen some incidents and evidence and the trends are concerning. That's the last thing we want. It will derail us and set us back for decades. So how do we avert that? How do we hold the moral ambiguity of reaching out to people that maybe we find disgusting or that we fundamentally oppose and be able to tolerate that. One of the stories I begin the way out with is this abortion divide debate in Boston and these extraordinary women. So they came together in 1994 because of a a terribly violent act that took place in Brookline. And that's what motivated them to agree to meet each other in secret, you know, in a facilitated process. But I want to point out that they, on both sides, feared each other, hated each other, believed that the others were trying to harm them and their families and, you know, the moral fabric of our communities, and nevertheless were able to come together, stay together under certain conditions and make a difference because of the need for the greater good. Initially, the whole thing was about preventing violence occurring again. And they felt that they had contributed to the conditions where that was more likely to happen. So that metaphor holds true today. What we, the activists, all of our activists, and I say this to social justice activists all the time or political activists all the time, and they're not not having it. (laughs) What I say is, yeah, activism is critical and we need to, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan. Do, do you know this Time Magazine article about uh, Mike uh, Podheiser's work in bringing together a network of... Uh, I don't know the article, but I know who Mike is and I know many of the people who attend that. Yes. Yeah, right. So there was an article Molly Ball wrote uh, several months ago on this initiative, which it was in Time Magazine, which is not a great article, but it does describe the process. And it's a critical process, right? Because what they did for two years is meet weekly and organize hundreds of people to do hundreds of different things to try to just hold democracy together through the election so that whoever won would be able to take or take power, right? Those things are critical. I, I, I think they're essential. I think they need to be mobilized. It was a nonviolent campaign. And in some ways, it was apolitical or neutral. They just wanted democracy to hold and function, right? I talked to Anna Galland, who was executive director of Move On. She talked about it a little bit. She she said, basically, they restrained the activists so that they didn't give Trump an excuse to, you know, to trigger the Insurrection Act or, or whatever he might have done. They did um, hundreds of things because I met with a, the editor of a newspaper in Cincinnati um, who said that, you know, somehow before the election, uh, Garnett, who owns the paper, came down and said, you, your newspaper needs to do everything you can to explain to the population how voting takes place in your community and how mail-in votes are counted, when they're counted, when they come in because that's going to be weaponized. And you have to explain to people that 
there are going to be several hundred thousand votes that are going to come in three days later, right, because of the process. That was one initiative that he suspected came down from this group. So again, they worked legally, they worked with the media, they worked with activists, they worked in a variety of ways to try to hold the middle and hold democracy and allow democracy to function. Critical, critical work, right? The problem is when we lose sight of these the consequences of our activism, of our need to fight the other side, and do so in a way that puts us into jeopardy. Remember, this is a country with something like 40 million Americans say that they're willing to use violence to protect the country. We have something over 400 million guns in this country, and 80% of those are on one side of the equation. That's our status. So if you're mindful of that, you have to be respectful of the need to both fight this fight and do everything we can to keep the discourse reasonable enough that it doesn't tip into more violence. So what, what would your advice be to a political consultant, let's say, who has responsibility for multiple congressional and Senate campaigns and has some ability to decide how to do the messaging in there. But as part of this system, their job is to win that campaign, but they are also a participant in the society at large. It's the same thing, the people writing the emails. There are so many people doing a job which they... You know, they strongly believe in advancing their side. They're doing their best to do that. But there are some aspects of it that could be done in various different ways that exacerbate the conflict among the citizenry. Yeah, yeah. Well, so my recommendation would be to look at the groups that have taken how they do what they do seriously and reflected on it and are trying to make adjustments. So the Solutions Journalism Group, right? They recognize that journalism as a business and journalism in practice and reporting in practice contributes to political polarization because it's an attention-based economy. They want provocative titles. They want provocative speakers and quotes, and they want to pit them against each other because that's what gets attention in news and social media. Um, and that model contributes to the conditions where violence is more likely. So what the Solutions Journalism Group is doing under this initiative called uh, Complicating the Narrative is sort of saying, how do we contribute to this? And are there ways to do our work, do our reporting in ways that are compelling and interesting and informative, but that don't make things worse? And how do we do that? And Amanda Ripley, who's a journalist, wrote a fantastic piece called Complicating the Narrative for Solutions Journalism, which sort of lays out, here are some principles that you should consider in your reporting. Same is true in Congress. Congress has this select committee for the modernization of Congress. It's co-chaired by a Republican and Democrat. Their job has been to look intentionally at how Congress functions, at the incentive structures, at the processes, and to make recommendations for how to bring down the temperature. So they're reflecting critically, to some degree, on what they have leverage over. And not it's not the party system. That's another problem. It's inside Congress. What are the nudges and changes that they could make in like the socialization of new Congress people that ultimately could help. There are groups and organizations throughout every industry, including politics, that are taking this seriously, asking those questions and saying, how do we contribute to this? And what might be the ways that we could nudge what we're doing, still achieve our main objectives, but not make matters worse and contribute to potential violence. One thing I was thinking about when I was reading your book was the position of Joe Manchin in Congress. He couldn't have pissed off the mass of Democrats in Congress more by, with cinema, stopping the whole program uh, from going through. And some people have created packs to attack him and try to... Uh, knock him out in West Virginia. There's just a lot of frustration with him. And I, I share that. On the other hand, 
he's still trying to put together, at least he says he is, and there's meetings, bipartisan solutions to some of the programs, at least that he wants to go through. How do we think about a politician like that through the lens of the greater conflict? Would we have been better off in the long run with more Democratic votes and getting through a program that solved potentially a lot of societal difficulties? Or are we better off with people in the middle trying to pull the two parties together? How do you think about a guy like that in that context? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, And I do appreciate people like him who do try to, at least in their framing of what they do in their politics. I mean, clearly he has a very strong red base that's important to his his election and his reelection. So a lot of what he does is playing to that, even though he's a Democrat. And so he, he does have this fine political line that he has to navigate. He's now more popular with the Republicans in his state than the Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so part of that is just political survival. He also, you know, like his boat, he has this boat, this yacht that is supposedly one of the places that is a bipartisan space where Republicans and Democrats can actually get together and meet, have some cocktails and talk, and there are no cameras. And that's a critical thing. So, you know, to some degree, I think people like Manchin and where he finds himself and where we find him is a product of this broader system, right? And the political party system that's pulling people in these strange directions in order to survive. So it's not just him. He is a product of that, his particular state and where it's at that can kind of go back and forth in politics. So, you know, I see him as more of a symptom, but I also see, again, there's aspects of what he does and what he says that I agree with. Jeff Canada, who works in violence prevention, has said with adolescents, the most important thing you can do about nonviolence with adolescents is just keep the conversation going. Because if you go in, if you heard that somebody had a gun at a party last night, and you let them have it and shut it all down and take everything away from them, guess what? You're never going to hear about that again. You know, He said, the primary thing you want to do with adolescents is keep the conversation going, because if you're not getting information and candor... And I do think that to some degree, part of what Manchin does, less cinema, is to try to keep the conversation going between people and maybe bide this time that structurally is so problematic and so pathological and ultimately has to change. And having some people in the middle navigating it as imperfectly as he is, I think is probably in the end uh, a mixed positive. The trend is not good, right? Your charts kind of show that, watching the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. The lunatics are getting control of the asylum, in my view, and uh, that party is is marching further and further away from the middle, away and away from a lot of norms that we've had for a long time, although it's more complicated, our history. There's something in your book that's, that suggests that you can find the, the fix in the nature of how things are going wrong. Do you see any of that when you look at the Republican Party and its current disease? Well, yeah. I mean, again, yeah. So the, the, the seeds of the solutions are often evident in the society itself and in the communities themselves. And again, I, I would go back to the select committee for the modernization of Congress. I've had conversations with William Timmons, who's from South Carolina, Republican chair, and Derek Hilmer, who's the Democrat, who's the co-chair, about their intentions and their work that they're doing. And they are trying to do good work. They are trying to do important things that matter. You know, do you, are you familiar with this committee at all? I am. I am. I'm aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. So again, you know, what they're doing isn't rocket science and it's not going to have an impact today, but it could re-socialize, you know, Congress and, and look at how they socialize new Congress people coming in and look at the fact that there are no places for people to talk across the divide that don't have cameras. And so they're never speaking to each other. They're speaking to their base. There are these structural things that matter that can make a difference over time. And so, you know, yes, do I wish Kevin McCarthy would hold his his caucus accountable 
and stand up with some kind of backbone against insanity that comes out? Absolutely. It needs to happen, should happen, but isn't. So looking at the things that people do do that have an impact on that is what I think is promising. Again, I think, ironically, Washington is not going to be able to necessarily heal itself. It's going to have to be a broader move around social media and around other kinds of movements that force Washington to do what it needs to do, and they'll follow suit. But there can be things that they can do to mitigate harm, and that is what groups like the Select Committee are doing. The subtitle of your book is How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. If you want someone listening to this to take away one or two things about what can be done, what they should do, what would that be? Well, so I, I distinguish toxic polarization from regular polarization. Polarization in a two-party system is a good thing. It's good to have a distinction between the parties and between policy positions and ideas and passion for that. That's a good thing. Toxic polarization is a trap. It is when we get into this biopsychosocial structural thing where we hate each other. It's toxic for our own biology. It's toxic for our relationships. It's toxic for our families and communities. And it's making us sick as a nation. So recognizing that, I think, is, is where we have to start, that this is not necessarily about embracing white supremacy or embracing you know, bad actors on the other side. This is about finding some common journey with those like us that don't want to do this anymore. One of the main recommendations I offer to people is if when something hits the news, when news breaks and your tendency is to go to your channels and your Twitter feed and watch the people that see the world as you do because it's comforting, force yourself to find three people who have different political positions from you, but who are well-informed, well-intentioned, and decent people, right? So they're not they're not the crazy fringe, but they're people that will challenge the basic narrative that your side will feed you and will keep you thinking, right? That's one simple thing you can do that just helps your mind challenge the comfort that we all fall into so easily in the media ecosystems that we exist in. There's so much going on. You mentioned all these thousands of groups. There's so much going on bottom up. It also matters a great deal what happens at the top, right? What would you want to see out of the president of the United States? Yeah, so I um, during the transition, the transition team reached out to me and to a group I was working with to offer evidence-based advice for the for the Biden administration. And they were interested in healing America and healing the soul of America. And I said, the America's not, not interested in that right now. America's not interested in healing and unity. Everybody's too angry. You know, the anti-Trump people feel like, how dare him? The pro-Trump people feel like this is a stolen election. He cannot unite those camps right now. What he can do is, A, not make things worse, right? Not use divisive, attacking vitriol to make things worse like Trump did daily. The second thing is that what people are worried about is that we're, this is a toxic time. So it's to And literally, there's good research on this, that the spread of rudeness and antagonism is bad for our biology. It's bad for our emotions. It's bad for our relationships and our families and scaling all the way up. You know, there, there are more um, car shootings where people are just shooting at each other's cars. There, there's more battles on airplanes. This is all on the rise. This is not a healthy place to live. And so what I said to them is, don't be about healing the nation. Be about detoxing this country. This country is addicted to outrage. We're addicted to outrage at the other side. How dare them? The social media knows that. Mainstream media knows that. They play into those cards. And we're all sick from that. So one strategy I recommend is he can't really unite because half the country thinks he's illegitimate. What he can do is say, we need to detox this country. We need to try to help each other 
heal ourselves and our own families. So he can kind of model a calmness and a... He can model a calmness, but he could also say, look, you know, we're making each other sick and we're on the on the verge of violence and this is toxic and we can't function. And so there are things we can do to ratchet that down and still disagree and still, you know, challenge each other. But it's not about uniting. It's about detoxing. We just ran a study which looked at a basic distinction in psychology. In psychology, there's two categories of psychological motives. One is half the population is particularly motivated to prevent harmful things from happening in their life. They're fear-based and they're motivated by that. The other half of the country is much more motivated towards possibilities and opportunities. They're much more ideal-based, right? What we found in our study is if you look at bridge building activities, for example, and you know what people's basic motives are, then if you frame it in a way, if I talk to you in a way that's about averting a civil war, that may really resonate for you and encourage you to engage. But the other half of the country, if, when they hear that, they're turned off. They're repulsed by it. So they need to hear that if we come together, we can build the best country in the world, right? We can move forward together and help our grandchildren and make the place safer and all of those things. These are very different motives. What Biden was trying to do was appeal to people coming together in unity, and it turns off half the country, including most Republicans. So what we did is a study where we asked people six questions. And, and based on their responses to those, we found out whether they're this, this mindset or this mindset. And then we presented them in, with information that either said, would you do these things to reach across the divide to make the country thrive and help us move forward or to prevent political violence. And what we found was big effects, if I know what your motives are about how to talk to you, about how to engage. And what I was saying to Biden is you're using one message and it's going to fall on dead you know, ears or be found as repulsive to half the country. So you need to have a, a better way to work with that. I'm working with a group of national service organizations that are using that framing technique and these six questions as a way to better understand what really mobilizes people and how to make a pitch to them that will engage them. Did you see the article the other day about how Governor DeSantis in Florida is modeling some of his recent moves with Disney and the Don't Say Gay after Victor Orban? I didn't see that. I'm not surprised. There's a part of the Republican Party that is looking with positivity towards the anti-democratic moves in other parts of the world that have been successful because they've taken those countries to the right on all kinds of things like gay rights and so on. Although they would characterize that differently. They would say that there's more order, law and order. Okay, and that's that's fair. Well, there's a lot of loss along the way to to more order. But there but yes, we have a lot of people in this country who would put order above certain kinds of freedoms. You've looked at conflicts around the world. You've seen the development internationally of states like Hungary and Poland, Philippines, Russia. Are there lessons for how to take on someone like DeSantis who might come into power, who is going to play those games? Well, so... You know, again, I think your question is a strategic question about how to defeat autocrats. And that's not the game I'm I'm in right now, right? I mean, I I, I support that game. <laughs> I'm not pro-autocrat. Pro but what I'm trying to say is, however we do that, has to resonate and re-engage the middle. One way is to take out you know, extreme right wingers is to attack them, take their money, take them to court, publicly humiliate them, whatever, to, you know, fight the fight. And again, I'm not against that necessarily, but I think a more useful and less problematic or volatile strategy is to re-engage more people in the middle in our conversation, in our discourse, on Twitter, on social media, through communities, through local communities where their trust is and re-engage them and reinvigorate them, that's a much more promising scenario to reduce the impact of the extremes 
than to go to war. I think that's a great note on which to end. Is there a question that I failed to ask that you would have liked to be asked? I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of ground. I think it was uh, a solid interview. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, anything else you want to say? Uh, no, thank you for the time and uh, and send me a link when it's up and um, I'm happy to share it and um, and good on you for interviewing 750 people that are trying to make this country function. It's inspiring often and and certainly a labor of love. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, can, I, I understand that. Thanks, uh, Peter. That was Peter Coleman. Peter is at columbia.edu. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.